Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. So I, you know, but what, what I think what's more stunning to me is that I didn't even realize that I didn't see myself. Mm. I, 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 it was just, it was just um, de rigueur that the representation that I saw were white people in those positions. And so the message I understand now, the reason that the message was, was so stunning, other than how incredible it is as a song, right? How amazing it is in terms of the beats, and the rhymes was that it was the first time to my recollection that I heard people of color telling their own story as opposed to Hollywood, which is the white male lens. Everything I saw of people of color, including my people, other than, you know, family and community, any representations I saw in media was all through Hollywood's white male lens. So I really appreciated that the message was this very defiant, very proud claiming of self. Because yeah. growing up in Vancouver, I wasn't exposed to James Brown. So I hadn't heard Say It Loud and Black and I'm Proud. I didn't hear R&B because I only was exposed to pop music, to white music through Top 40 Radio. So that's how I came to, you know, that's how the message kind of spun me around. How you did, how you did. That was Sophia Chang. And honestly, this was one of my favorite episodes. Many of you might not know, but I am a huge fan of hip hop. So when I got the opportunity to interview the first Asian woman of hip hop, you can imagine how stoked I was. Her book is amazing. You should definitely get it. It's an audio book. It's one of the, the books I've gone through this year. And it's fascinating because it's really unapologetic in how you express yourself to the world, how you make sure that you don't take anything for granted. Now, I do want to warn you that there is some profanity used in the uh, podcast episode. So if you have kids, be warned. But it's a real, really, really great episode. I would encourage you to check out her book, check out her audiobook, and check out her work. I mean, this is not the last you hear of Sophia. I'm sure you're going to be hearing of her in many, many, many upcoming projects, whether it's relating to media, film, music, or, or whatever she's doing with speaking. But I hope that you take the message of being yourself from this podcast. Enjoy the episode. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of As Told by Nomads. And today's guest is Sophia Chang. Now, her memoir, The Baddest Bitch in the Room, is a 360-degree immersive and unprecedented audio experience that combines character voices reading their own dialogue, original score, licensed music, sound design, and bonus content. Essentially, if you're a hip-hop head, it's amazing. If you're someone that loves to root for an incredible story, it's also amazing. As a child of Korean immigrants raised in Vancouver, Sophia wanted to be white until she heard the message by Grandmaster Flash and the Fierce Five in, in her senior year of high school. She diverged wildly from the prescribed path of academia and fled to New York. And this is where she became the first woman, the first Asian woman, rather, in hip-hop. Now, throughout her storied career, she's worked with Paul Simon, as well as managed Wu-Tang Clan members ODB, the RZA, as well as Q-Tip, A Tribe Called Quest, Raphael Sadiq, and D'Angelo. So many of these um, amazing, amazing, great, uh, influential musicians. We're going to be talking about her background as a manager, her background as the first Asian woman in hip-hop, but also how she truly found herself through exploring what it is that she wanted to do and breaking down traditions. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much. I'm really excited to speak to you, Ty. I'm glad to be here. Well, the pleasure is mine. The thing that immediately caught my attention, you say, as the child of Korean immigrants, you wanted to be white until you heard the message. Can we, uh, can we explore that more? 
Yeah. In Vancouver, I was a yellow girl in a white world, plain and simple. Every representation and manifestation of beauty and power was white to me. Mm. And so I, and I, and I think this is a pretty common experience, which I've gathered from just my anecdotal evidence and conversations. This is a pretty common experience to first-gen immigrants of color. Yes. And, you know, and, and how can we not strive for a white ideal? I, I think it's common because, again, it's all we see. So I was born in 1965. That means that I was coming of age, so to speak. When I'm 10, it's 1975. So the standard of beauty for women is blonde and blue eyed. And I could not be farther from that phenotype. So I, you know, but what, what I think what's more stunning to me is that I didn't even realize that I didn't see myself. Mm. I, 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 it was just, it was just um, de rigueur that the representation that I saw were white people in those positions. And so the message I understand now the reason that the message was, was so stunning, other than how incredible it is as a song, right? How amazing it is in terms of the beats and the rhymes was that it was the first time to my recollection that I heard people of color telling their own story as opposed to Hollywood, which is the white male lens. Everything I saw of people of color, including my people, other than, you know, family and community, any representations I saw in media was all through Hollywood's white male lens. So I really appreciated that the message was this very defiant, very proud claiming of self. Because yeah. growing up in Vancouver, I wasn't exposed to James Brown. So I hadn't heard Say It Loud and Black and I'm Proud. I didn't hear R&B because I only was exposed to pop music, to white music through Top 40 Radio. So that's how I came to, you know, that's how the message kind of spun me around. Um, and then moving to New York and being ensconced in hip hop and hanging out with the Native Tongues movement who are steeped in Afrocentrism, A Tribe Called Quest, De La Soul, Jungle Brothers, Latifah, Moni Love, you know, that kind of made me think about, wow, that's really beautiful to watch these artists, you know, think about their connection to Africa, right? To the continent. Okay. And it made me think about my connection as an Asian to my continent. And then I meet Wu-Tang and, you know, the doors, do <laughs> the, the doors blow open. Yeah, yeah I, I love that story. And, and there's so many, you're so right when you say many first generation immigrants have that story because of the idealized versions of what beauty is. It's, it's, it's how you do your hair, how you see yourself as a hero. You don't see yourself or read about yourself as heroes. And when you hear about the history, it's often started with the, you know, bondage or shackles or, or, or enslavement and things like that. Sure. Uh, so I appreciate you highlighting that, but there's also something powerful when you see someone being able to connect to uh, a home of theirs. Now I am, I'm Nigerian. So I had a lot of history of knowledge of that, but as I started to grow up, in different parts of the world, I had a similar experience where I also felt like I needed to be white to be considered cool and not being white or, or having the hair, the straight hair or all those type of things was always something that I couldn't explain to my mom as a 10 year old. <laughs> and so be, being able to, to articulate that or having someone like you or having an influence in hip hop could, was always something that you could always turn to and say, Hey, they look like me and they're proud of that. So, uh, yeah, no, it's very interesting sharing that. Thank you. So you say Method Man was the first to call you family. ODB was the first to hire you as his manager. And the RZA was the first to empower you as general manager of a label. First of all, these are legendary people in, a, in, in the hip hop world. But also Vancouver to New York. When did you decide <laughs> that you were just going? I know you, you talk, touched on it there. You had heard the music and all that. But to just make that jump and say, I'm going to New York City, especially in the time you went, New York City was, you know, they had all these interesting stereotypes. And you just said, no, it's NYC. That's where I'm going. What was that like? I, I hope, Tayo, in listening to my memoir, people, what they gather is that I am fearless. And I know that my fearlessness is rooted in my confidence. Now, I jumped 
not only do you see me jumping from Vancouver to New York and, you know, deviating flagrantly from the narrowly prescribed immigrant path, but I, from career to career, I mean, I existed in so many different disciplines. Now, in so doing, of course, look, I have a middle-class safety net. I'm never going to knock on wood. My children and I are never going to be homeless nor hungry. So it's a lot easier to jump around and quit and walk away from something when, or not care when you're fired, when you know that everybody's going to be good. So I just have to put that in as a caveat. With that, I just, I do have this, you know, I have this titanium level of confidence that, all right, if it doesn't work out, what's the worst that could happen? I get humiliated, I get fired, I don't like New York, I, I'll just go home. I was never, I never weighed stuff out that heavily because it always felt right organically. And when that didn't feel right, I simply didn't do it. There were many, many, many opportunities that I turned down because they just didn't feel right to me. That said, when I accepted an opportunity, it felt right enough that there was not a lot of compunction about jumping in, even if it was in, into completely unknown territory, or in this case, an unknown city. Yeah, no, no, that makes sense. That makes sense. But this safety that you jump in is still New York City, all right? And, and New York City is a city that is always on the go. And I was listening to your to your book, and you know, you described you know your first experience where you, you know this method man actually. Um, said something and, and, and stood up for you. Can, you. can you describe that? Because, you know, we're going to dive into the world of, of uh, patriarchy that we have today. Uh, so, <laughs> but, uh, yeah. No, it's a, you know, Taya, when I conceived of this book years ago, several years ago, I always knew that that story would open it, no matter what form it took, because it was so significant to me. Hmm. Essentially, I met Wu-Tang in the summer of 93. Their album comes out in November. You know, the out, their album comes out three or four months later. And I may have met Meth once or twice before this incident. I walked into the studio. They're recording at Battery Park Studios, which is the same building as Jive, where I worked as a talent scout. And he rushes me and he says, Sophie, you've got to see my video. You've got to see it. I, I just got my video in. So he has one of only two solo songs on Enter the 36. The Jizza has Clan in the front and Method Man has Method Man. So we're watching the video and Meth doesn't sit next to me. He kind of stands to the side and is watching my reaction. And then sitting directly across from me next to the television, facing me, not looking at the TV, but looking at me is this guy, Jamal, who's one of Wu-Tang's crew. And... It was so clear to me the way that he was just kind of giving me this glare that he didn't know who I was, but more importantly than that, he didn't like that I was there. So, I, you know, being in the studio with an artist is really like being in the innermost chamber because it is where they create. It's very, very intimate. And I know artists that don't like anybody in the studio. You know, D'Angelo is like that. Raphael Sadiq is like that. And so for me to be in there, it was clear that I had, I had some kind of place being there. And it was also obvious that I'm nobody's girlfriend. I'm not a groupie. I didn't sign them. I'm not managing any of them at this point. So his calculation in his mind was how, can I curse on here? Oh yes. Yes. How the fuck did she get in here? So the video finishes and he looks at me and he says, where are you from? And any person of color can tell you that that's not really a question. Almost always the intention behind that is a statement to make you feel other. Because really what it's saying is you don't belong here. So he asked and I, so I started, I said, you know, what are you, I'm not sure what you're asking me. And I was totally lying. I knew exactly what he was asking me, but I didn't want to answer it. And when I did start to answer, you know, if you're asking me where I was born in Vancouver, if you're asking me where my parents are from, they're from Korea. If you're asking me where I live, and before I could finish the answer, Meth. Now, Meth is 6'4". He is not a small man. Yeah. And he's big. And when he wants, he can be extremely imposing. And he is nice with his hands. And everybody knows that. And, but he's usually the sweetest, kindest, most loving guy. He flies in between us and he just starts yelling at this guy. 
that's Sophie Chang and she's down with Wu-Tang. You have no right. Who are you to, you know, ask her where she's from? Don't you ever disrespect her again. And he just flew into this rage. And I, you know, I say in my memoir that I had my own personal whooper hero, right? That he was just this, this God to me. He just expanded into this entity that was so incredible because I'd never had that before. It's not that I didn't have friends. It's not that there weren't ride or dies. It's not that there weren't people that were really loyal, but I had never been in the situation and had somebody show up for me in that way. And I think what's really key about this interaction is that Jamal is one of his crew. I'm sure he's known him for much longer than he's known me. He barely knows me. And there, there is nothing that is transactional in our relationship. You know, again, I'm not giving him money. I'm not giving him jobs. I didn't sign him. He's not on my label. I don't manage him. None of that. He just has this phenomenal capacity for empathy. And he cannot stand it when people are being, I was, you know, in a very subtle way, I was essentially being bullied and he would not, that he did, could not abide that. Oh, there's no doubt about it. That, that's actually, that was, that was actually bullying. And the the reason why I draw it as a parallel, you know, I said earlier, I run a diversity inclusion firm, but a lot of the my job when I'm talking to people, especially people of power, you know, with privilege and have a certain power dynamic, I always talk about the importance of not even just as mentoring, but creating safe spaces for people um, in, in underrepresented backgrounds. Because sometimes, a lot of times, I've, I've, I always say, you need to find opportunities where you've been a bystander in the past because some people will be like, I, I don't want to cause a ruckus. I don't want to do anything that would that would bring uh, a lot of attention to me. And I always say you don't understand what you'll be doing for that person if you, one, stand up for the person, but also then create a safe space to let them know that it's okay to be their whole selves. Uh, you don't understand how that will impact that whole person's experience, not only, not only in the office, but outside of the office. So I don't know. Why do you think we don't do that enough? I just think people are fucking cowards. I think that people are so afraid of losing whatever real estate they think they have that they don't want to risk that. They don't want to put that at risk. And look, I also understand that not everybody is as outspoken as I am. And it's not comfortable. You know, I think public speaking is one of the, you know, is the number one fear in the country. So I'm not underestimating how difficult it is to speak up, period. You know, there are plenty of people that even if they have a great idea, they don't want to speak up. But what I think is really important, to your point, is to understand the weight of it. So to put it in... (laughs) because we're in New York City, to put it in Wall Street terms, to put it in finance terms, it's cost-benefit analysis, right? So the cost to you is, yes, I risk people looking at me and saying, why are you saying something? And that can, that's scary. I get it. But the benefit of the, the benefit that it has, that you are going to make somebody feel seen, and valued mm. me that's immeasurable you can't that's golden that's everything you know when I, when i speak up i say that my hope is threefold every time i walk into a room tayo i do what i call the race and gender inventory of the room <laughs> that's so true how many women are there how many people of color are there how many women of color are there right right and I, you know, if I make a statement and I am outspoken and I am there and I do, I do the cost benefit analysis. I understand what this is going to do. I understand that people are going to be like, yo, that's not appropriate. You shouldn't say that. Why? You know, that's kind of rude or untoward. I don't really care. And it's not about me. It's not to aggrandize myself. So the benefits are threefold in my estimation. The first is that I make my point. There aren't enough women of color in this room, whatever it is. I think that's racist. I think that's sexist. And nobody likes to hear that, right? Especially white people. White people fucking hate to hear 
that something is racist. That's their fragility. And I don't give a fuck about it, clearly. So that's number <laughs> one to make my point. Number two is that you now know who the fuck I am. And you understand that Sophia Chang is somebody that you bring me into a room. If I see something that is wrong, I will speak up about it. Maybe I don't do it in the room. Maybe it's not the place. Maybe I say it afterwards. But I will say something. And number three, my hope is that I will inspire others to do it as well. And not just other people of color to stand up for themselves. No, I want the white people in the room to start doing the same inventory as I do. Because this is white privileges. They never have to think about this shit because they're almost always in the majority, right? right? They don't right. think about it. And you've heard white people when they go into spaces that are people of color. Wow, you know, this is, you know, this is crazy. Everybody's X, everybody's Y, everybody. Yeah, well, welcome to my fucking world, right? Yeah. So I'll, I'll give you a really beautiful example. Jizza and I were invited to this fantastic gathering of it was probably 75 to 100 of the top scientists and people in the science community at MIT. And, you know, MIT has pretty much the smartest people in the world. And we were invited to this, to this gathering. It was the first annual gathering, and it was essentially a conversation about how do we bring science to more people? How do we open up the conversation around science? So I'm sitting in the back. It's me, Jizza, and Neil deGrasse Tyson. And at the end of it, they, say, they open it up to questions, and um, I put up my hand, and everybody turns around because I'm all the way in the back. And I said, you know, it's really an honor to be here. I'm really grateful to be invited, but I do have to make the point that this room is shockingly, there's a shocking lack of diversity in this room. And the guy says, well, you know, um, I really appreciate you making that point. Um, and we were really conscious of that. And the cohort here is probably 55 men, 55% men, 45% women. So this is where, this is where Kimberly Crenshaw's argument of intersectionality comes in right? When people pat themselves on their back for diversity, and that diversity is white women, okay? That's great, but it's not enough. If you think that just hiring white women, that your fucking DNI department has done its job, you're wrong. You're wrong. It's not enough. It's a start, but it's not enough. And so I said, I appreciate that. And I see a lot of women in here. But let me tell you something, that if me, Jizza, and Neil deGrasse Tyson got up right now, we went outside for a smoke, you would lose half your cohort of color. And that's a problem. And the room was deathly silent, because it's all white people. Now, what I will tell you, two beautiful things happened. After that, I cannot tell you how many people came up to me, many of them white men, and said, wow, Sophia. Thank you so much for saying that because I was thinking the same thing. I just didn't have the courage to say it. And recently, now this was years ago. This was probably well, six years ago. Recently, I reached out to one of the people that was there. And I said, I'm not sure if you remember me. We met at this event. And he wrote back to me and he said, Sophia, how could I forget? And he said, and I want you to know that after you stood up and said what you did, I, as a white man, have tried to carry on your tradition in some small way, and I vocalized the same things that you did. And that almost brought me to tears because that's what the fuck we need. So those of us that live on the margins, we need to have people who live in the center understand what it's like to live on the margins because they don't know. And if they are not socially, culturally curious, then they're not going to know. And again, that's one of the things about white privilege is you don't really have to question it because it's your fucking system, right? Yeah. <laughs> why, would you, why, would you, why would you ever question it if you made it for you and your people? That shit wasn't made for me at all. So yeah. I think that being outspoken is really hard for most people. I get it. But we have to speak up. The squeaky wheel gets the oil. And what I promise your listeners, I promise you, 
that the more you do it, the easier it gets. So that it's like practice. I've been doing Kung Fu now for almost 25 years. And the first time I did it was excruciating and it was really, really hard. But any of you that have ever done anything and practiced anything, piano, yoga, running, oh, I could never run a fucking marathon. I can't even run down the block. And they end up running 26.2 miles. You know what it's like to practice something and you get your muscles. Well, it's the same thing for speaking out, whether it's for yourself or on behalf of others. The first time, for most people, it's really uncomfortable. And I get that. But I am now at the point, just like with my Kung Fu practice, it is harder for me not to say something than it is for me to say something. And that's where I'd like everybody to get, because that's how we build empathy. That is how we teach people to see each other. And that's how we get people to value each other as humans. And when we start to value people as humans and see them as humans, we won't fucking lock them up in cages. You know, we won't do the atrocious, much of the atrocious stuff that goes on today. Yeah. We won't dehumanize people. I, I think a lot of people that's don't understand that concept. It, it's uh, to your point about intersectionality. It, I love the analogy you brought. And I didn't mean to cut you off there, but I, I want to give you a chance to keep going off because it's so true. I mean, a lot of times people of color understand these things, but I always try to explain to people. I use this analogy of right-handed people and left-handed people that most of the world is 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 essentially right-handed, right. uh, but but they don't wake up, you know, having to to wonder what glove to use or what utensil to use or any of that stuff like left-handed people have to have to do. But that doesn't mean that left-handed people's experiences isn't a lived experience or a real life thing. It just because you don't experience it doesn't mean that it's not real. And a lot of times people will be like, oh, that still happens. That is so racist. How how can that still be happening right now? <laughs> and and I always I always say, look, just because you don't see it, it doesn't mean you, you, yeah, it's not happening. But also now that you know it's happening, you you have a responsibility not to be a bystander. Yeah. Right. You have a responsibility to, to use your power to change and tell different stories in Hollywood to to make sure that different uh, the curriculum is diversified in school to make sure that you call out the, your friends that are using those racist terms, you know, or microaggressive comments, you know, that's where it all starts. Our biases start around three years old. So your kids are watching, you know? <laughs> so yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. absolutely. And you know, my girlfriend, Treva Lindsay, she's a very, very, very smart professor at OSU at Ohio state. She always says, you know, so it's not enough not to be racist. You have to be actively anti-racist, anti-racist, actively. What does that look like? For instance, in my community, Asians, there tends to be anti-blackness in our community. Yeah. And look, that's part of white supremacy. That's part of divide and conquer, right? And I understand that. But I think it's also something that needs to be addressed. Asians, we also have to acknowledge, and I'm talking about Far East Asians, not necessarily South Asians or Southeast Asians, but Far East Asians like the Chinese, the Japanese, and Koreans. Um, are the benefit that we enjoy being next to whiteness. We're white approximate. And so you can't enjoy that benefit and not pay attention to what else is going on. Yeah. Right? You have to be cognizant of it, and you have to actively fight against the rest of it. I, 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 love, the, I love that you brought that part up, because that segues into the next question I have. I know what the model myth, myth minority is. Model, model minority myth is, rather. But can you explain that to the audience and how you broke away from that? Because um, it, obviously us being in this field, it's, it's a term we know. But I'm curious to, if you can explain that, because I'm sure there are the Far, East, uh, Far Eastern Asians who are listening who probably deal with this, uh, you know, the, the model uh, minority myth. So the model minority myth, and I am not an academic, <laughs> and there are people that can speak to this much better than I can. But from what I understand from my limited research, the model minority myth is something that came up in during the civil rights movement. Right. And I believe that it was actually speaking mostly about the Japanese, but it was something that white people created to um, drive a wedge between black folks and yellow folks that we as Asians were used as an example to black people. Why can't you people be more like those people? Look at them. They're so hardworking, you know, they're so disciplined, you know, um, 
and they are, you know, they part of the myth too is that we are compliant, that we are politically malleable, that we don't upset the apple cart. And I think many of us internalize that. I think all of us in this country, how do you not internalize <laughs> messages of racism, misogyny, ableism, homophobia, transphobia? You know, I mean, I think we all to some degree and obviously vastly varying degrees internalize some of these things. I know that I did. I can speak for myself. And part of what I try to do every day is deprogram myself from those beliefs that start, like you say, when we're three. So I think it's really important to understand how we're being educated. And so for me as a model, look, I was honestly never the model minority because my constitution is different. <laughs> so Tyle, I'm super outspoken. I'm really confident. I always have been. But as I've gotten older, and again, as I discovered hip hop, and as hip hop gave voice to my sense of defiance and anger and, and allowed me to be proud of those things and honor those things, I became more and more vocal. So what I always knew from a kid, I knew about racism because to my face, kids are saying chink jack goop chink jack goop so that's clear yeah i wasn't thinking about gender i didn't think about gender until much 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 i didn't start calling myself a feminist until like just it, it, it maybe when i was in my late 40s because i was afraid that i wasn't educated enough that i couldn't pass whatever feminist purity test but obviously i am now i consider myself a feminist if it means you know equal treatment, equal pay, equal rights. Right. Right. Um, and then as I, you know, as I am now careening through middle age, I understand, oh, okay. So there was racism, there was sexism, and now I have to deal with ageism. <laughs> right. So, you know, that incredible trifecta of oppression is the machine against which I rage every day. I mean, if you think about it, if you really think about it, I am a, 54-year-old Korean-Canadian woman. I am a single mother of two grown teenagers who is out here telling the world, wearing a t-shirt, a I'm like fucking wearing a sandwich board, okay, that says that I am the baddest bitch in the room. <laughs> That's radical. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, for sure. Absolutely. Uh, <laughs> unapologetic, too. That, that's, 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 a, yeah. Wow. Um, you, so, <laughs> the, the, you know, I, I, so anyone listening, you can see that this book is not, it's not even just a story of just hip hop, but it's a story for anyone who's felt marginalized and visible on the valued, you know, anyone who's been told that they can't follow their dreams or anyone who's ever been made to feel like they don't belong. And you, you, I love how intersectional you are with the belonging here because you just brought up ageism and I'm sure there's, the, there's a whole, you know, there's, I mean, we, you, even just thinking about dating or sex for women over 40, over 50, which is what you brought up in the book, um, that comes with its own set of challenges uh, and you have your own index. So can you talk about <laughs> what, uh, what that means essentially? I mean, 
I, I think that there is a common misconception that women hang up their vaginas at 40. You know, they pack, they, they pack them up and they put them away in a closet. Now, if there are women that do that, obviously this is not a judgment nor an indictment, but I think that how deeply ageist this society is, especially when it comes to women, is disturbing, and I think it's disgusting. Um, so, uh, you know, I had plenty of lovers before I met the father of my children, and I've had plenty of lovers since. And one of the things that many, most of my girlfriends have been asked by their, and I'm talking about straight couples, um, by male partners is, how many men have you had sex with? I will tell you that I don't know a single woman that asks that question. And if they ask it, it's only in response to being asked it themselves. And I think it is so fucking sexist. If this was something that everybody talked about openly, then I wouldn't care. But it's not. That's, you know, it's kind of like saying all lives matter. Yeah, all lives fucking matter, but that's not the point. If all lives truly matter, Truly, we wouldn't need a movement as incredible and powerful as, and impactful as Black Lives Matter, right? So what I'm saying is that if everybody, if, if nobody gave a shit how many people you've been with, then this wouldn't even be a conversation. But it seems to be almost uniquely men that care about how many women, how many men rather, their female partner has been with. So in my audiobook. I talk about what I have named my dick index and it's 66 men. So I fuck 66 men and it's probably, I don't know, since then that shit might be like 70 by now. I don't know. And I don't care. And what I say in my audiobook is I'm not proud of that number, but I'm not ashamed of it either. And I am only putting it out there because I want the world to know I don't fucking care what you think. Call me a whore. Call me whatever you want. But I put myself out there and I'm not comfortable doing it. I don't want to fucking tell people how many men I've been with. I put myself out there in hopes that we can start a conversation around how incredibly sexist that question is and that men shouldn't ask it of us. I'm a sex positive feminist, clearly. And the notion that somehow, because no man wants to hear a big number, right? The only really good answer to that is one or two. No, the, the notion that you are putting us to some kind of purity test. I mean, I've heard men say shit like, yeah, if a woman's been with too many men, then I, 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 you know, I might fuck her, but I'm not going to make her my girlfriend. Really? Why? Why? Is she somehow a lesser person? Is she somehow not a good person? if she's had multiple partners. And I think a lot of men would say, yeah, I don't want her to be my wife if she's been with too many men. I don't want her to be the mother of my children if she's been with too many men. But you flip that question and you ask them, and a bunch of them have lost count. Or if they have count, they don't judge themselves the same way. And I think that is so flagrantly unfair. So that's why I talk about it. Yeah. I, I, I don't, you know, again, it's not something that I want to put out there, but I'll take the fucking hit, you know, I'll put on the Kevlar and I'll take whatever people want to say about me. If it means that people will listen to it and think about, and it opens up the idea the conversation and it opens up people's thoughts to, yeah, this is a really fucked up question to ask of women. Oh gosh, I love that, and it's the double standard exists. It's not. It's even. It's even in the in the freaking movies we watch. It's you know, it's locker room culture. Men are praised for yep. the amount of sex they have, the amount of women they have, and if it's a woman, it's it's it's, it's flipped. And I love the fact that you brought it up because it is something that we need to bring uh, bring up. But it's also something that we socialize our our kids, even when we're bringing telling them to go to prom or all these things. It's it's a different set of rules we have for uh, young men than we have for young women. Like you know, don't do this. We're do yeah. this. <laughs> so, yeah. Uh, oh, wow. Yeah. Um, but that's the, that's the reason why, you know, and I'm almost done with the other book, but I've been loving 
listen to it because it really is about just being yourself and unapologetic. And I don't think we're actually being told that in our world. You know, people say be yourself all the time, be yourself, be yourself, be yourself. But we don't even create the spaces for people to be themselves because when people express who they are, some people run (laughs) (laughs) or judge you and say, how dare you? What the heck? That's who you are. (laughs) So, I mean, I walk around the streets of New York and I love it when I see a gay couple holding hands, kissing openly expressing their love for each other because they should be able to. And I think about how fucked up it must have been to have to be, and I'm sure it's like this in other parts of the world. I'm just talking about what I love about my city. Right. You know, how does it feel not to be able to express yourself fully? I'm going to quote actually a fellow Nigerian. He's Nigerian American. (laughs) His name is Julius Ona. He's an incredible director and he directed a movie called Loose, which came out um, a couple of months ago. And it's about the experience of a transracial adoptee. Um, The child is black. I don't remember what country he is from Africa and he gets adopted by upper middle class white parents. And it's so well written, directed and acted. And I saw him do a Q&A with Danielle Belton, another good friend of mine. She's the editor in chief of The Root. And he said, I believe that every person should be granted complete access to the full spectrum of humanity. And, I, and I've never, that just struck me so deeply. It was like a bolt of lightning. Because I think what we are talking about, Tayo, is that we, those of us who live on the margins, are not granted access to the full spectrum of humanity. So, like I'm talking about, same-sex couples, they're not allowed to fucking marry up until a few years ago. You're not granting them access to the full spectrum of humanity. Me, as a middle-class Asian, educated Asian Canadian woman, I'm not allowed to be angry. You are not granting me access to the full spectrum of humanity. You, as the child of Nigerian immigrants and a man, deal with whatever microaggressions you deal with. Maybe you have to ask your white friends to get a cab, although those days are over because of ride share or, you know, you do not conduct yourself in a certain way because you're afraid of being perceived a certain way because you are a black man in America, mm-hmm. you are not being granted full access to humanity, right? Those are, those are all these boxes, concentric boxes that are placed on top of us that oppress us, frankly. And You know, when I think about, I'm born in a box because I'm a girl. I'm born in another box because I am the child of Korean, of immigrants. I'm born in another box because my parents, uh, English is not their first language. I'm born in another box because I am yellow, right? Um, And I just take a machete and I just rip through those boxes. My life is an act of defiance. I obliterate every stereotype that people have of Asian American, although I'm Canadian, Asian American women. You know, my brother, and I write this in the epilogue, my brother said the most brilliant thing to me, and it was profound when I was writing. He said, look, Sophia, what you are doing with your memoir is you are simply asking the world to imagine that you exist. So it's not me saying, love me. It's not me saying, I want to be popular and I want to be rich and I want to be famous. It's not me saying, do what you can to be just like Sophia Chang. No, 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 no. It is me saying, grant me access to the full spectrum of humanity and grant yourself access to the full spectrum of humanity. Be as self-actualized as you can because I really believe that when we are permitted and permit ourselves 
to be the fullest, most robust version of ourselves, the good parts, obviously, that we are better people, that we contribute better to society, and we can make this world a better place. You and I know scores of people, Taya, who repress whatever parts of them, and of themselves, and they're deeply unhappy about it. So whether that's being the child of Nigerian immigrants or Korean immigrants and feeling like I've got to go to med school, but I fucking hate it, but this is what's expected of me, right? Or right. I have to be an engineer because, you know, my, for generations, my, you know, my family's been engineers and I hate it, but I'm doing it to um, please my parents. Uh, I think that we know lots of those people that are unhappy and I understand that. I understand wanting your parents to do something which you see as being safe. I have two children, you know, I, I would, if they were like, yeah, you know, I just want to um, be a sculptor. I'd be like, Oh, or worse, a rapper. I'd be like, Oh man, what, you know, what's this going to look like for you? But I would support them because I truly believe that we are at our best and the best contributor to society and humanity and global well-being if we pursue our passion, as long as that passion obviously isn't nefarious and harmful to other people. If we are allowed to pursue our passion and tell our stories in the most full-throated way possible, we can make this world a better place. And that's what I hope my memoir does. It's not this, it's not a self-help book of like, listen, Tyler, you wake up every morning, you look in that mirror, and before you even brush your teeth, you tell yourself these daily affirmations. I'm not writing that book. I don't give a fuck about that book. That's not the book that I'm writing. The book that I wrote is a book about me. It's the only thing that I'm an expert on is Sophia Chang and her children. And I'm hoping <laughs> that my memoir can be prescriptive to the degree that it inspires people to be more true versions of themselves and to tell their stories in whatever fashion that is. So Tayo, that could be, you know, I'm telling my story in a very literal fashion, but maybe it is as a sculptor. Maybe it is when it's something as banal and quotidian and small as going for dinner and you speak up and you speak about your experience. I mean, obviously you've done this in a much more public fashion, but let's say you weren't public like that. And people are talking about whatever their experience or lack of experience is with the continent of Africa. And then you can talk about what it meant to you to be raised by Nigerian immigrants and moving around and all that kind of stuff. That is you essentially telling your story, which is what you did in your TED talk. You were telling your story and you, you know, you speak to diplomacy, right? And you speak right. to how um, you're in some ways you're making the same point as me, right? What you learned yeah. from your father was the art of diplomacy and the art of diplomacy. A lot of that is storytelling. And a lot of those stories are about ourselves. And again, in so doing, we build empathy. That's, that's so powerful. And I have so much to say. I know we only have a few more minutes here, but th that idea, um, I'm just tweeting about it now because it, it hit me. Experiencing the full spectrum of humanity is the idea of being seen, heard and understood for who you, you, who you really are. When you think about humans and you think about, our needs to belong, our needs to connect. We also have this darker side of us where we become tribalistic. But when we don't have a good relationship with people that are different from us, whether it's against the standard uh, that we've had, we then become our worst versions. I mean, if you look at how we've reacted to different people of the different colors or different gender or different orientation, our first instance is to always uh, try and suppress it or try and shut it down or try and quote unquote civilize it. And I'm always trying to do what you're saying is why can't we just change that relationship and become more curious about that? Because w when we do that, we're basically saying that our way is better than your way. And there's no way we're ever going to listen to whatever you, you have to say. We don't even try to think about the possibility that there are multiple ways to get to the right answer <laughs> or, or expand our, our mind beyond that. And I, and I think it's, it's, you know, it's creating way more invisible people, but when you create more invisible people, you not only do you, do you uh, suppress the opportunity for better creativity, but, but also a better experience? You just stifle your own growth because <laughs> you you the world is so much bigger than you. You, you, you just you don't actually understand 
people and you, you don't have to know how to interact with, with uh, people from different backgrounds. And that segues and leads into this, the final point before we go to the final question, which is this idea of mental health that has been stigmatized. I know in Nigeria, where, you know, where I'm from, you know, my mom and dad would say, well, <laughs> you, 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 you're a strong man. You better not uh, come here with any, uh, psych, you know, psychological issues. Don't talk to any, don't talk to any uh, psychologist or any in anything. Keep your problems to yourself. You know, you're a man. <laughs> so everything was, you know, <laughs> you're a man. Don't talk to anyone. Don't cry or anything. That's a, that's America's, that's a, that's the West. That's the, the, the people doing that. And so we've seen a rise in school shootings. We've seen a rise in people, uh, suicide. We've seen, uh, people not willing to come, you know, to express that, Hey, they might have, you know, bipolar disorder. They might have all these things because, it's just another way to use your word. We're not ex allowing people to experience the full spectrum of humanity. And if they say that, that's going to make them less than it, or it can make sure that they don't get the job. What, what do you think about mental health? I mean, I think that, um, first of all, those aren't my words. Those are Julius Ona's words, so I can't take credit for them. <laughs> but I, look, I, I am fortunate that I don't suffer from mental illness. And the first thing that you said that your parents would say to you is strong mind. And I think that lexicon in and of itself is what is problematic. And no, 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 I'm not indicting your parents. This is what many people no, say. No, no, I'll tell them. I always tell them. I love my parents, but they know. <laughs> yeah, I tell them that all the time. <laughs> I think that we, and, and, and me too, I thought this too until I became educated. We think that um, addiction, for instance, is a weakness to the point of having a strong mind, right? Or mental health somehow is a weak is a weakness. I never thought that mental health was a weakness, but I thought that addiction was a weakness. Those are not weaknesses. They are illnesses. They are actual illnesses. Having an addictive personality is an illness. Having a mental health issue is an illness and needs to be treated as such. It is real. My mentor, God rest her soul, Sonia Chang, whom I talk about in the early chapters, she was uh, depressive. And I'd never had somebody speak openly to me about it before. And the way she described it, saying, you know, so there are times when I wake up and I can't get out of bed because I feel like there is an elephant sitting on my chest. It is physical. Physically can't get out of bed and I cry all day. And I never looked at her and thought, well, that's really weak. Uh, you know, she really educated me about that. And so I'm very, and you know, the Asian community too, I just heard a really stunning statistic. I wish I could remember it about the rate at which I believe Asian American teenage girls are committing suicide. You know, we have to open up the conversation and just like the dick index thing, we have to destigmatize it. So just like I don't want you to judge me how, for how many men I fucked, we should not be judging people for illnesses. We don't judge somebody if they have um, cancer, if they have cerebral palsy, if they have, I'm not saying that they don't live with stigma, but I'm saying that we don't judge them right? Because we understand that these things are involuntary. So to the same degree, addiction and mental illness are not things that you can simply opt out of. There are measures that can be taken, but until we destigmatize those illnesses, many people will not seek the help that they need because they think somehow that it is something that they've done wrong or that it is a weakness. And they too have internalized, internalized those messages. And look, I have proximity to hip hop because of what I do. And I am truly dismayed by this whole culture that revolves around taking opioids and this glorification of taking opioids. I, I find it really disturbing. And the notion that there are rappers out there bragging about, you know, Oxy, Perks, Zan, like, 
I, 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 you know, I, I don't, I think that it, you don't have to know very much to know that opioids are extremely addictive. <laughs> and to think that people are bragging about using them. I also don't think that you use opioids casually. It's not like me saying, oh, fuck, I had a long day. You know what? I'm going to, I'm going to treat myself and have a glass of Chardonnay. You know, you can casually smoke weed. You can casually, you know, have a glass of wine or a scotch or something like that. I don't think you casually use opioids. And the thing that I learned about addiction recently, which was stunning, Tayo, is that most addicts, once they start using regularly any substance, they don't use to get high. They use to get normal. They got to fucking do whatever they do just to feel normal. Never mind high, because the body starts to build up a resistance to it. You know, the first time you do blow, it's like, whoa, I wouldn't know. I've never done it. But I'm sure the first time you do blow, you're like, oh, shit, that's amazing. And maybe the next few times or whatever it is, it still feels great, but it necessarily starts to diminish because I'm not a scientist, but from what I understand, because of the way our body synthesized drugs, in the same way that if you use too many antibiotics, your body becomes immune to the antibiotics. So there are these kids that probably the first time they're like, yeah, that's really great. This feels really great. And then they do more and more and more. I mean, my friend, Sean Sitar, who writes for Complex, he read the 40 page report, however long it was on Mac Miller's overdose. Mac Miller I, I don't know if I'm going to get the details right, but I believe at midnight he texts his dealer and asks him to deliver drugs. And then two hours later starts to freak out because he doesn't have them. And I think asks somebody else to get them for him or whatever. And he is ordering, I think, 15 to 20 pills. He's only with one other person. There's only one other person in the room. They don't need 15 to 20 pills. So I think what's going on with a lot of people is that, as my friend Casey Lehman would say, they are slowly killing themselves. I don't think any of them are trying to kill themselves, but I think they are slowly killing themselves. And I, and they have audiences, <laughs> you know? They have millions and millions of kids listening to them. And some of those kids are vulnerable to those messages. And I really wish there was a reckoning in hip hop about, I wish that first of all, I wish whoever's around them would try really hard to get these guys help because a lot of them need help. I don't even listen to the music, but I just know from what I hear and what I have heard and what I stumble across that there are some guys out there, there are some artists out there who are in serious trouble and they will, we will continue to lose hip hop talent if we don't address this. And I wish that the people around them, and I don't know the people around them were in a position where they could pull them over and say, Hey, this is dangerous. You are going to die. You are seriously risking Dying. I know enough about addiction to hard substances that there are only two ways out. One is you get clean and the other is you die. And I just, I don't, you know, we just keep glazing over and over and over this. And, you know, I, I, I talk about this in my memoir. Riza himself reads his own stunning eulogy about old dirty bastard, God rest his soul. And Riza says when I think about Asan, that was Dirty's righteous 5% name, I'm going to take 5% of the blame because he told me he was in trouble. He said, I'm dying. And I didn't listen. And I thought that was amazingly brave for Riza to admit. And I think that there might not be artists that are actually saying to their friends or managers, I'm dying, but it doesn't take much to observe the behavior and know what the statistics are on opioid overdoses in this country. 
to know that that's a really dangerous route. I'm not saying that everybody that's rapping about opioids is even doing it, frankly. Maybe they're not even doing it. Maybe they're just talking about it, which I also think is fucked up. But again, if they're talking about it and they're doing it, I think it's super, super dangerous because it's not like weed. Nobody, as far as I know, ever died from overdosing on weed. It is not addictive the way that these drugs are, even though it's still considered schedule one, which is preposterous. So I, you know, I was going to do a panel about it um, with Danielle Belton at the root with the root and Riza and Joey Badass, but it's, you know, schedules just got crazy, but this is a really, really big deal for me. And so is the mental illness thing. You know, I have plenty, plenty of friends who are the children of Asian immigrants that their parents would say the same thing as you like, no, 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 you're fine. You're fine. It's the whole, like, just pretend it doesn't exist. Right. It doesn't exist. Absolutely. Ah, oh, gosh, I, lo- I love this so much, but we only have so much time. And please don't stop. I'm going to continue to do this work as well. But I love the, the visibility that you bring into the, these these uh, factors. Um, and if you want to check out her book, it's called The Baddest Bitch in, in, in the Room. It's an audible. It's this 360 experience. You can get it. I listen to audiobooks all the time. So I'm on my <laughs> 82nd book of the year. So make sure you, you listen to it. It's, it's an easy listen to. Uh, you know, while you're in the gym, while you're, you know, walking, while in your transit moments, you know, while you're washing the dishes. So make sure you check it, make sure you check it out. Uh, and I'll put that in the show notes for people to actually uh, download as well. Don't you but, think I, I deserve a Grammy? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I heard that if you, so my book just came out and I didn't get to, to, to voice it. I wanted to, but the, you know, they, they, uh, they gave it to someone else. But I hear that if you voice your book, you are eligible for Grammy, so uh, you better get a Grammy. Uh, <laughs> you, be- you better get nominated and get a Grammy. That's exactly. the <laughs> both. Of those. both yes. Of those. <laughs> the, the last question before we go, uh, future Grammy winner, uh, uh, Sophia, is my mission statement rephrases the question. My mission statement is use your difference to make a difference. So, how do you use your difference to make a difference, Sophia? I think I already answered that question, Tayo, but I can rephrase it to, I can retrofit it into your question. How do I use my difference to make a difference? I think that I'm different in so many ways. I think that I look differently. So even, so you and I are minorities. So right there, we are different. I'm also a woman. I'm also middle-aged. I also have a crazy haircut. You know, Asian women are known for their long, beautiful, thick black straight hair. And I had that, I had it down to my waist and it's gone now. And I have this crazy samurai hairdo and I have a very unique sense of style. I have a very unique way of moving and speaking and engaging that are very different than anything you've ever seen. And I use all of that to help others. We are here to be in service of others. I'm, I'm about to be famous. I never wanted to be famous. I know what the fuck that means. And it's not pretty. Some of it is great. Some of it is fun. Sure. But I cherish my anonymity and I chose to abdicate that and put it aside when I figured out by stepping out into the world and sharing your message with the world and being extremely public. Yo, I just told people how many men I fucked that I could help other people because just to do it for me, Self-aggrandizement, self-enrichment, to be famous. I don't give a fuck about any of that. I don't. I love living in my little apartment with my kids and being able to go out on the street and not be recognized. And that's about to change. But again, I will pay that price if it means that I can be in service of others and help other people. Oh, there you have it. Sophia Chiang, ladies, gentlemen, and non-binary individuals. Thank you so much. I, I, I truly appreciate that this is going to be an amazing episode. I can't wait for this to come out. Definitely going to put it out very, very soon. But I really want to thank you for coming on the show. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to speak with you. All right. The pleasure is mine. Ladies, <laughs> gentlemen, and non-binary individuals, till next time, use your difference to make a difference. You've just been listening to the As Told by Nomads podcast. For more ways to reach out to Tayo and to use your difference to make a difference, head over to www.tayoroxon.com. Hold up. 
Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. 